0: Welcome
1: to CypherVision and today's episode, Understanding Pattern Value. I'm Nigel Schweitzer and joined by co-host Francesca today. Today's guest is Jay Yonamine, Product Manager at Google. Pleasure to have you with us, Jay.
0: Thank you and uh, happy to be here.
1: And for those people who saw the promo around this podcast, welcome to Arnie also.
2: He's behaving nicely. Jay, thank you for joining us today on Cypher Vision to talk about patent value. I understand that you recently presented a conference around your view on patent value, not Google's, but your view, but we'll get onto to that in a little bit. But could you, for our listeners, tell them a bit about your background? How did you end up thinking about patent
0: value? My sort of relevance professional experience started in grad school where I got a Ph.D. in political science, but was doing mostly applied statistics, applied machine learning, forecasting with a lot of text. So I was using open source text to build forecasting models of political violence and political instability, which obviously doesn't have a, a ton of obvious connections to patents, but some of the methodologies and sort of the approaches to NLP and the approaches to applied statistics are pretty commonly used across all industries. So finished that and then jumped around to a few different roles. I was at an insurance company doing like old school traditional statistics for a while and then got connected with a couple classmates of mine who were at this company in San Francisco doing something I didn't fully understand, but I'd been living in central Pennsylvania for four years and I probably would have Sold hot dogs in San Francisco if the opportunity that presented itself. Took that job, uh, and that was RPX. And so that was my first foray into the world of patents, was doing a lot of automated portfolio analysis, patent quality models, a bunch of different things, but really a good introduction into you know, applied machine learning in the context of patents. Google was a client, and so I got to know the Google patent team through pitches and demos. And then Google essentially asked if I wanted to come and do similar work for Google. So this was summer of 2015 and I started off just as a data scientist doing all sorts of interesting work and then eventually grew a team of data scientists. And for the last year, I migrated to a similar flavor of role, but covering the the broader legal org instead of just patents. And then a couple months ago, I left the world of patents and the world of legal and now a product manager within the geo org at Google.
2: Great. Thank you. And would I be right in saying that you're probably one of the first data scientists that's worked in patent teams
0: at RPX and Google? There are definitely a couple folks scattered in industry who are essentially embedded within a patent or legal org who are full-time doing data science work, but it's rare. I don't know of any dedicated teams in industry. For a while, You know, it definitely felt like being a bit of an island uh, within industry. And I know, of course, there's lots of startups and lots of patent analytics companies are companies that provide analytical SaaS software out there. But in terms of like in-house departments or at law firms, I think even today, I think it's still quite scarce.
2: If a patent team is is listening today, what advice would you give them if they were thinking about bringing on some analytics capability?
0: First, I think that it makes sense. I think when you just look at what you can do with advanced analytics, advanced machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's tremendous. I think the potential impact is massive. I think every team should be thinking about this. I think there's ways to go about it and there's ways to you know, leverage vendors, leverage consultants to sort of test the waters to get a sense of how your org's going to react to new technology, new capabilities. And then if and when you decide that it's time to hire, I would really make sure and, and highly advise doing two things first. One is making sure that senior leadership is really bought into the idea of bringing on someone to do this type of work, knowing that it may disrupt the status quo, may... Provide a new way of looking at things and may just be a little bit of a culture shock, uh, both to the data science person or team coming in, as well as the existing patent council and legal ops folks. And then, secondly, I would advise if you want to make that jump to bring someone on, get someone senior. I think a lot of folks that I talk to want to sort of test the waters, maybe hire one junior person. And I think that's just not going to work. It's too complex of a substantive domain. The technology is strong, but it's not super well understood by everybody yet. And they're, they're going to face hurdles. I think you really want someone who's seasoned, who's tested, who's, who's been through the ringer to really give yourself a fighting chance.
2: Great. Thank you. And I think there's a few themes there around data science and culture, which leads us nicely onto our main topic for today around patent value. Just thinking about patent value, though, who cares about patent value and why is it so important?
0: Yeah, I, I think everybody involved in the patent ecosystem, either implicitly or explicitly wants some sense of what their patents are worth and what other people's patents are worth. And Because of that understanding and estimation of value is critical in essentially all transactions, right? It's critical in how much you're willing to pay for a license, how much you're willing to pay or accept in a portfolio transaction, how aggressively you're willing to fight in a litigation, how the settlement discussions go, how you you navigate expert damages. So I think the idea of value is just ubiquitous within almost every aspect of the patenting ecosystem.
2: And so how did you approach looking at patent value? You
0: know, like a lot of areas, it's complicated. There's lots of ways to look at these things. What I focused on in this paper and these conferences was trying to sort of dissuade folks of a notion of a black box where a patent goes in and a dollar value comes out. And that approach is appealing for a lot of reasons, right? If you could do it right, it would facilitate a lot of probably transactions. It would likely reduce the likelihood and volume and intensity of litigations. It would make portfolio management much easier. The core point of my paper and my presentations was that this approach isn't going to work and it's the wrong way to think about valuation and to think about how to leverage data and analytics in the valuation process. I should also say that's not to say I think that there isn't value of machine learning and AI in the valuation process in general. I definitely think there is. I'm a true believer in the, in the power of AI and to impact sort of all things in the patent ecosystem. But this specific sort of example is the wrong way to think about the challenge. And what I mostly focus on the paper were some theoretical and empirical reasons of why I think this is the case, and then really drilled into some sort of interesting statistical attributes of what's of a patent valuation and drew some insights that we can learn from that.
1: Some of our listeners will be disappointed. They'll have heard you say house prices, and you can do automated house valuation. They'll have heard you say insurance, and then along comes patents, and it doesn't work. Maybe you could just take a backward step and tell us why it's possible with those asset classes. And... Perhaps not possible with this one?
0: It's a great question. There are very accurate, well understood ways to generate automated pricing. So, houses is a great example, right? Most people are probably familiar with Zillow and they have this way where you enter in some information about a house and you get a price, and it's pretty good. Even when it's bad, you're maybe off by 10%, you're maybe off by 20%, but it's pretty good. Cars, same deal, right? If you're trying to sell a used car. In, in, in the U.S., you have a Kelly Blue Book, which you, know, you give it the make, the model, the mileage, accident, history, and you're going to get pretty close to what someone's going to be willing to pay for that vehicle. Insurance, similar, right? You can go online and, and enter some stats about yourself and you get a health insurance price very quickly. So there's all these examples of data goes in, something happens, dollar value estimate comes out. There's a few fundamental differences between those industries and patents. And and there's a couple of theoretical differences and a couple of empirical differences. And theoretically, I think one of the most important concepts is that the value of a patent is a function of who owns it and what they intend to do with it, which is much, much different than other asset types. If I own a share of a publicly traded company and a hedge fund owns a share or someone else owns a share, it's still worth the same value. Essentially, regardless of what we intend to do with it, if I try to sell it tomorrow and flip it, or if I'm gonna buy and hold for the rest of my life, you're buying the same thing and it's worth about the same amount, similar for houses, similar for cars, similar for other assets. Patents is different. If I'm a large operating company and I have a 20,000 patent portfolio, I may not even know about one of my patents. I may never do anything with it. The inventors may have left the company. I may just be paying the maintenance fees in perpetuity and, and do nothing with it. That and it may be essentially worth zero to me. If that patent disappeared from my portfolio, I might not even know. If you gave that same asset to a patent assertion entity or a law firm that specializes in, in patent litigation, they may be able to extract tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in licensing revenue from that patent if they pursue a revenue generating model very aggressively. And so that's just all to say who owns the patent and what they do with it is fundamentally important to the value. All of these other examples that we discuss need training data. Almost every right, machine learning problem needs training data, whether it's real or whether it's synthetic generated programmatically. And patents, we just don't have it, right? There's 10s, 20s of millions of patents that are enforced worldwide. And we know ground truth valuation data for less than a fraction of a percent of these. And what I mean by actual ground truth valuation data is how much the patent was sold for how much licensing revenue a specific asset has generated or what a settlement amount has been for an individual asset. That data is just extremely sensitive. No one shares it. And so this idea of training a model similar to these other industries is just technically not feasible. And then the other area where I really focused on in this paper and in these talks was that the distribution of patent values is so extreme and so skewed that the prediction of value still likely wouldn't be important on an asset-by-asset basis.
2: To summarize, you can't value an individual patent because, A, there's an issue around getting the correct data, B, it really depends on the ownership and intention, and C, the values are just so widely different that a model just couldn't cope with that.
0: If you have an individual asset or a family or a very small number of assets that has a well-established licensing program, then you can, but that's a different thing. You actually don't need to have read the patent, you don't need to read the claims, you don't need to know anything about it, all you essentially need to know is the cash flow. In those instances, you can, but it's a very different approach. It's not a patent-centric approach, it's more of a financial analysis. What I'm really getting at is this idea of take any patent, put it in the system, dollar value comes out, I think that approach fundamentally will not work, which is different, right? A house or a car, you never, a house could be built in a neighborhood. It could be the first house ever built. It could be first house in the area code. There could be no comps. And if you know square footage, niceness of them finishes, bedrooms, bathrooms, and a very quick sense of the niceness of the area, you're going to get pretty close, right? Any naive model can get you very close. It's just, but that approach just isn't going to work in patents.
2: When we think about previous guests that we've had on Cypher Vision, and we've talked a lot about the transparency in the patent system around how you should be able to communicate what patents can deliver to an organization outside the IP team. It feels like we have to have a solution here.
1: I think Jay's research just encourages us more to think about what is possible today. And you did allude to that before you said, maybe not this, but maybe something else that thinks more about who owns the patents and the context and what
0: else they own what are your ideas there jay i definitely do not want anyone to take away that i'm arguing that there aren't ways to think rigorously about the value patents provide to an organization or the value that patents could generate in terms of dollar value for a licensing entity because i absolutely think that there are just i would really encourage folks to think contextually is for my business, for what my goals are, for what I'm attempting to accomplish, what's the value of patents. And that can vary tremendously from organization to organization. And a one-size-fits-all model isn't going to work. For example, a large operating company that doesn't have an aggressive licensing program clearly isn't trying to generate revenue from their portfolio. So, why do they have a patent portfolio? Well, defensive purposes, being able to counter assert if needed and as needed. Reputational value to be seen as a hub of innovation, right? a recruiting tool where engineers who are interested in filing patents and demonstrating in a tangible way that they're innovating in the space may want to go to a company that has a well established patenting program. Those are all value generating aspects of a portfolio that are fundamentally different than what a patent assertion entity may be focused on where they don't care about reputational value. They don't care about recruiting engineers. They don't care about defensive purposes. They don't build a product. They care about purely revenue potential via an aggressive licensing and litigation program. So just really being thoughtful on the context that we're in and then making sure that the approaches to how we're analyzing our portfolio and thinking about the ROI are contextual as opposed to this idea of, you know, one size fits all sort of black box algorithmic approach. And then within each of those contexts, there's ways where leveraging, you know, machine learning and AI tools are going to be huge differentiators. A couple of examples at the sort of large operating company with a large portfolio, you may have 10,000 assets, 20,000 assets, 50,000, 100,000. When you're thinking about analyzing the portfolio, comparing your portfolio against other companies' portfolios, thinking about long-term strategic portfolio management, it's just not feasible to rely on human review intensively for that many assets. It would literally take you an infinite number of time because by the time you got done, you know, there'd be a fresh crop of applications to review. And so, for in that context, you need to leverage automation, machine learning. Some of these tools are immensely powerful in doing sort of high-level portfolio analysis, what technologies are covered, what's the density of of technology penetration relative to other portfolios, what's the novelty level, what's the general importance relative to other patents in this industry. And then if you're, again, on the other side of the equation, if you're a small firm doing patent enforcement, the primary mode of analysis is going to be manual, eyes on, writing claim charts, getting second opinions on the claim charts, haggling over every word in a specific office action, and so it's a much more manual approach, but that manual approach can be greatly enhanced if you understand how to use automation. So in the process of building your assessment of likelihood of facing an IPR challenge or assessing novelty of the patent, if you know how to use automated prior art searching tools, conceptually how to leverage technology in that space, you're going to have a much more effective time at even doing that really intensive manual review. So that's all to say, I think there's a tremendous value in using automation for every area of the patent ecosystem. It's just critically important to understand the context in which you're operating and select the right tools for the right challenge that you're facing.
2: So thinking about patent portfolios, there's also an analogy back to your valuing a house or a car because you don't value the individual bricks, carpets, windows, or engine, steering wheel for the car. So maybe looking at a patent portfolio that gives you the ability to manufacture and sell products which have potentially thousands of patents behind them is maybe a better approach?
0: I totally think so. So How and when to leverage automation is pretty closely a function of the number of patents that are in question that you need to analyze. When the number goes up, I think it's increasingly important to rely on automation, again, because you just can't do a consistent deep dive manual approach on that many assets. And so I think at the portfolio level, I totally agree that leveraging automated tools is going to be critical, not just for time, but also for consistency. So even if right, you're in a world where you could manually review all of your assets and you had a very deep understanding of how your products use technology and which of your assets cover which of your products. It's very difficult and basically impossible to do that for all other companies, their portfolios and their product. When you get in those areas of asking questions like, to what extent does my portfolio cover my core innovations and my core differentiating product features vis-a-vis other companies' portfolios and other companies' core innovative features, I think you really need to rely heavily on automation. Of course, with a lot of human review and a lot of additional human layering, but it just doesn't scale to do those approaches manually.
2: Thinking about valuing a patent portfolio, Nigel, we've done some work around this. Do you maybe want to talk a bit about the approach that Cypher's suggesting?
1: Fortunately for this podcast, it's in line with Jay's thinking. We believe that with the approaches, some of them developed with Google about how to optimize your portfolio, how to quantify the value delivered, the risk mitigated from your whole portfolio, those economic models are now well accepted. And so the idea of using algorithms and automation to classify, to compare are there. Now, what we've done with our new paper, which is called Calculating the Contribution of Patents to Enterprise Value, is to take it one stage further to use fundamental finance analysis, which says if your portfolio impacts cash flow positively or negatively, then you can take one of Jay's traditional models and go from that impact on cash flow to calculate that contribution made by that portfolio to that owner on the enterprise value. And I think that's a, a huge step forward you know, the idea that patent people talk to patent people about how nice their patents are is a pretty narrow sort of ecosystem echo chamber. What we're trying to do with our paper, and I think all the work that Jay has done in the past, not just this one academic piece of research, is to help with communication. And people around the patent teams, like finance, like R&D, like the board, like investors, aren't interested in hearing the tale of a single patent. That is not a story which travels. They want to hear about value and risk, and they want it in dollar terms. That's my soapbox, Jay. How does that
0: sound? I completely agree, especially at the large corporate level for companies that, that generate revenue. Then the patent org is a standard P&L group where patent revenue is not super different than SaaS revenue or software licensing revenue or, or other revenue, revenue is revenue. And for companies that don't have meaningful revenue, I totally agree that one at a certain level up the exec chain or in other departments cares if one or two of your patents is some incredibly novel, innovative, interesting thing. If it's not fundamentally useful to the business and if we can't draw the linkage back to how this enables the business, enables our product innovation, enables you know competitive differentiation versus our competitors. So I, I totally agree that consistently having that little voice in the back of our head at operating companies thinking, what would the business say? What would a finance person say? What would our CMO say? And always having in the back of your mind that you're not just an island, but you're part of a broader company and the company has a mission. And the company has to think about how many things fit together Innovation and patents being a part of that broader puzzle, but not a standalone entity that should be speaking its own language and thinking about ROI and valuation in a way that's totally different and disconnected from the rest of the business.
2: Great, Jay. I think you answered my next question. What should the future hold? It sounds like you just painted a very good picture there of what organizations should be doing. Any other advice that you would give to patent and IP teams who are thinking about this, but just trying to get their head around it?
0: There's always this sense of, The real innovation is coming. It's just around the corner. Three years from now, everything's going to be different. Ten years from now, everything's going to be different. And so definitely don't want to fall into that trap. That all being said, the rate of innovation in machine learning, artificial intelligence is increasing at a rate that I think even day-to-day practitioners are struggling to keep up with. And I think now it's probably quite likely that five years from now, 10 years from now, we won't even be able to predict or have any sense of the innovation in the AI, ML space that will be coming in the next decade. And companies and practitioners who do their best to stay up to date the best they can are going to see... Their value to an org and their value in industry sort of disproportionately outpace the folks who just aren't staying up to speed with the latest technologies because the technology is be so powerful. And so, if there's any one single point of advice I would give is at least have somebody in your org who's dedicated and committed to staying up to date on the latest technology and advancements in the AI ML space, and ideally someone who actually has hands-on sort of practitioner experience because. It's just going to be such a differentiating skill set in years to come.
1: So Jay, I always get the pleasure of asking our guests for their cipher vision, the key takeaway. Give it to us.
0: It's easy to understand how to use AI-enabled tools, even in the patent ecosystem. It's hard to understand how they actually work and how the underlying technology works. If you can take the time and have the energy to really understand how the technology actually works, the core ML at the guts of the system, you'll have a disproportionate advantage over the folks who know how to use the tools but don't fundamentally understand them. And so I would encourage folks, if there's any inkling of interest to understand how these ML algorithms actually work that are powering all these tools, go for it. Take a Coursera course, watch the YouTube videos, write some code. It'll pay dividends. I think you'll have a profoundly different understanding of how to leverage technology in ways that should generate a ton of value in your day-to-day operations.
1: Thank you, Jay. Patents are how the world's technology companies choose to protect over $1.5 trillion of investment every year at a cost of over $40 billion a year on the patents alone. With that quantity of input, it's not surprising that people are asking, what's the value of patents? At first sight, Jay's research suggests that you can't ask data science to algorithmically value individual patents but in line with the very best of academic research, it forces us to reflect on whether we're asking the right question. Cypher's contribution to the discussion builds on two fundamentals. First, that the value of patents depends on who owns them, when and why. Secondly, that there are many situations whether it's better to assess a portfolio as a whole rather than taking it apart brick by brick. So Jay, thank you for the encouragement to take a close look at patent value. For too long, patents have been regarded as a cost or worse still as a source of risk. Now is the time to recognize and quantify the significant contribution that patents make to the enterprise value of their owners. Thanks, Jay, for the conversation.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks, Nigel. And thanks, Francesca. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you for tuning into the Cipher Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag Cipher Vision and share your thoughts about today's episode on understanding patent value.